This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman. Every day, the headlines seem to shift on the coronavirus, COVID-19. Here in Hawaii, we don't have any known cases, but we still don't even have the test kits to be able to screen for it. State health officials say we may get them in the middle of March. On a broader scale, the coronavirus rattled financial markets at the start of this week. Today, markets were down in Asia and are mixed right now in U.S. trading, but the environment remains volatile. As you heard on NPR, President Trump is expected to talk about COVID-19 at a news conference scheduled for 1 o'clock this afternoon that we'll bring you live here on HPR 1. Meanwhile, one of the continuing concerns here and elsewhere is the potential impact on tourism. One area where that's hit especially hard is Japan, which has been developing a tourism industry that's been extremely dependent on Chinese visitors. We talked about this with Ray Suchiyama of Honolulu. His family is originally from Maui. He grew up partially in Japan and here in Hawaii, and also spent 20 years working in Japan, including running operations in the country for the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. We started by talking about the sheer volume of Chinese visitors to Japan. And when you hear these numbers, bear in mind that Hawaii set a record last year for overall visitors of more than 10 million. Chinese visitors to Japan in 2019, last year, hit a record 9 million. 9 million. And significant spenders as well. That's correct. Uh, They contribute uh, $8 billion to the Japanese economy. And that has evaporated. That's correct. Uh, Since uh, before the Lunar New Year, uh, Japanese uh, Japanese firms and uh, hotels have suffered greatly since they've stopped coming to Japan. The Japanese government has put a premium on tourism, has identified that as an underperforming area that it could do better with. That's correct. From about uh, five to eight years ago, uh, Prime Minister Abe really focused on tourism as a way to grow the economy. And uh, so it was a way to really uh, uh, bring more spending into the economy, consumer spending. And uh, so the government made it easier for Chinese, uh, Asian visitors, uh, European, et cetera, to come to Japan and uh, stay and enjoy uh, Japanese culture, uh, hotels, and uh, scenery. And the Olympics, just as a as a tourist event, certainly coming up, it's still some ways away. It's uh, July twenty fourth through through August 9th. but there's concern about uh, what happens uh, with the Olympics. Certainly, the the International Olympic Committee says it's not going to move the games. It's not even thinking of that. But uh, it's a interesting time with that. That's correct. And uh, we're at the end of February. And already a a couple of days ago, the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo raised the caution level to level two to visit Japan uh, for American citizens. And that's not saying don't come to Japan. That's level four. Mm -hmm. But level two is to exercise caution. And that's a phrase that that is very, very unusual for Japan. That's right, because Japan is a first uh, world country <laughs> with uh, water you can drink uh, from the faucet and uh, uh, absolutely great sanitation and, uh, as you know, a, um, uh, a complete uh, you know, urban lifestyle that is the envy of the world. And much more so than the last time that Tokyo hosted the Olympics, which is a very historic event, 1964, turning a turning of the world, really, to Japan at that time. Yes, and uh, I was there. I was mm. living in Yokohama and Tokyo and uh, in elementary school at a U.S. Uh, military base in uh, Yok- uh, Yokosuka. And uh, if you can compare what we perceive China today as a huge economy or an economy that's really uh, changing, that's how Japan was back then. And Tokyo was a huge city of 10 million people at that time. Mm. And uh, it was uh, ringed by factories. There was intense smog. It was a nation really rebuilding barely 20 years after the end of the war. So if you're 20 years old in the Japanese military at the end of the war, you're barely 40 years old. 
1964. So you saw a, a spectacular rise of the uh, Japanese economy and society. And this time around, Tokyo's positioning itself within Asia-Pacific in, in a slightly different way. Right. Uh, Tokyo, at the time of the Olympics in 64, was the first Olympics in Asia. Mm. So that was a um, record, in a sense. And um, now, in 2020, uh, they want to solidify uh, Tokyo and Japan as a great center for tourism <laughs> in, mm. this, in this age, and that it's easy to come to uh, Japan and, and uh, spend time. Um, and this coronavirus came out of nowhere uh, in, in late December, and it has impacted Japan in, in ways that nobody really foresaw. And there will be adjustments. I mean, even apart from the coronavirus, there have been adjustments made with its, you know, that the, the heat in summer in Tokyo is insufferable. And, for example, the, the marathon changing what they were going to do with that. So that there have been some adjustments on, uh, uh, in terms of their plans. Right. And uh, in 64, the Olympics started in middle of October, uh, and it was much cooler, although I remember it quite humid uh, ah. <laughs> and warm. <laughs> and my mother telling me to watch the TV uh, to see the opening um, uh, you know, uh, remarks by the emperor at, at the stadium mm. there. And it was quite warm even then. Uh, but you're correct that uh, in the middle of July to, uh, until early August this year may be the hottest time of Japan. And the, the temperatures are warmer than they used to be. That's right. Tokyo. That's right. And, um, but again, um, uh, the major difference is that uh, back in 64, like I said, every day was smog. Hmm. Every day was, uh, uh, I mean, people wore masks even back then because of uh, the great air pollution. The canals the, uh, were, were terrible, and there was endless construction. Remember, the Shuto Expressway was uh -huh. build, built for the Olympics. The Shinkansen Line was being built for the Olympics. Bullet the, Yeah, a bullet train that, that cut down uh, to uh, two and a half hours to hmm. uh, Kyoto and uh, Osaka instead of seven, six or seven hours before. So there were great changes, and I remember uh, my father telling me, oh, there's a new hotel uh, being built. It was called a New Otani. Ah, yes. <laughs> and again, it became a very uh, emblematic of the new level of luxury in, in Tokyo. So all these things, and the other thing is the depopulation. They moved a lot of people from the uh, Shitamachi areas mm. uh, to build the expressway and the stadiums and so forth to the western suburbs. And so th those areas became very much the new um, uh, population centers, uh, residential for Tokyo. That era, that time of excitement about the Olympics, wh what was that like? You, you were uh, just a kid, but uh, surely you remember some excitement about this. Times. Well, uh, to me, the Olympics brought a TV. <laughs> it was a black and white TV, uh, but uh, nevertheless... And, and sales of televisions right. and radios skyrocketed, televisions especially. Absolutely. And now, the first time that TVs began to sell, and it was a luxury item, was the wedding of the uh, Heisei Emperor right. uh, to uh, uh, Michiko, uh, the Empress. And that was uh, the big um, uh, TV um, selling uh, yes. campaign, I guess. Uh -huh. The Olympics, of course, uh, everybody wanted the TV to watch the Olympics. Not everybody could afford uh, mm. a ticket there. Mm. And, uh, but you have to also remember uh, that when I went to a park, there was Kamishibai. Hmm. There was a, a itinerant uh, man who used to show a little sh uh, uh, by uh, signs like a manga of his time, anime of his time. And then uh, it was a medieval uh, drama, and all the kids would look at him and then buy little uh, 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 sweets from him at the end, end for five yen. Ah, <laughs> Boy, those, those days are, uh, are gone. Um, so the Olympics this time around, what, what do you think the government of Japan wants to get out of this Olympics? Well, again, continuation of tourism as a um, major source of revenues for the economy. Uh, mm. th that has to uh, come in. Uh, now, when you look at um, uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 
the entrepreneurial economy has not really taken off in mm -hmm. Japan. Uh, there is uh, there is uh, not the sense of Silicon Valley and of uh, the Apples and the Microsofts and the Amazons are still American when you think about it. And you have a handful perhaps, arguably, of entrepreneurs in Japan who have done that, whether right. that's... Uh, Rakuten, for example, or SoftBank mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and others, but not as much as people thought it would come about right. by now. So uh, the uh, hotel, hospitality industry, uh, retail uh, are now drivers of the economy in many ways. So again, the Tokyo Olympics will be a, um, a showcase uh, to uh, uh, really uh, bring uh, more visitors to Japan. And, and the coronavirus is, is uh, frightening to the Japanese government. So what do we watch for between now and the Olympics in terms of political developments on that Olympic front? Well, I, the uh, ways that will impact the Olympics is, of course, foreign governments saying that uh, their citizens uh, should consider going or not con uh, consider uh, going to Japan. Mm. That is the you you hold a passport. You just can't uh, violate your government's uh, policies on travel. That's that's the uh, big one uh, over there. Uh, and of course, uh, Japan has to really um, uh, not uh, allow or have uh, measures in place to uh, not increase the coronavirus uh, infections within Japan. That's the other thing. And, and the Diamond Princess um, uh, ship board experience was not, uh, I would say, it's, it's been uh, very controversial how they went mm. about it. It's also, it's interesting when people put numbers on the coronavirus and the numbers of cases. Um, with Japan, there's a bit of a false impression because so many were on the, the, the ship. That's right. That uh, it, it's not as if it's, it's as broad throughout the country. According to friends, and I Skype with people all the time, uh, it's business as usual in Japan. Mm. They're, go they're going out to uh, eat, they're going to uh, department stores and so forth. So uh, that has not impacted uh, uh, daily life in, in the cities. It's just that the uh, many Chinese visitors who would be here uh, in, in Tokyo, Osaka, even the smaller cities like Sendai or Sapporo or Fukuoka are not coming. Lots of time and developments between now and the beginning of the Olympics. Th that's, that's correct. And uh, one uh, point that uh, the Japanese government made uh, with uh, getting um, the uh, Olympics committee to um, award the Olympics to Japan is they said, we have a lot of stadiums and, and uh, venues left over for the 64 Olympics, and it'll be cheaper <laughs> to use them, which is a good uh, uh, argument. Uh, and they already did one in 64, so they know how to do one successfully. And uh, so th those were the um, you know, pro-Olympics in, in Japan argument. And uh, this is, again, uh, coming out of um, uh, no one's imagination uh, how these uh, uh, foreign, um, I guess, uh, impacts on, on uh, the economy. External shocks. That's correct. Certainly. Rei Suchiyama, you spent 20 years in Japan, former head of MIT in Japan, currently consulting in education and real estate, many Japanese clients and others here in Honolulu. Thanks, Ray. Thank you very much. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio, HPR1. Coming up, your backyard quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we go to the mat. This female athlete won five junior national championships in judo, but when she was a junior at Roosevelt High School, she thought she'd give wrestling a try. 
She ended up winning the state championship two years in a row. She went on to Missouri Valley College on a partial scholarship, and in three seasons, she medaled in the U.S. Nationals and Pan American Games each year. Prior to her senior year, she trained at the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. Her first Olympic experience was in 2008 in Beijing, where she placed fifth in the freestyle 48-kilogram, or 105-and-a-half-pound, weight division. But four years later in London, she became a medalist and won bronze. What we would like to know is what is this wrestler's name? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets our reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. Electric vehicles, that's one topic of discussion at the legislature this session. About 40 bills now are related to EVs. HPR's Ryan Finnerty is here with a bit of an overview and a bit on why they are such a hot topic this session. Hey, Bill. And as you mentioned, a lot of bills at the Capitol this year. Uh, Most of them, not all, but most are aiming to increase the use of electric vehicles either by requiring uh, state and local governments to use more EVs in their fleets uh, or by trying to encourage consumers to purchase electric vehicles over conventional gas uh, gas cars and trucks. And, and this is pretty significant for Hawaii. Everybody knows Hawaii is trying to decarbonize. The governor has made it one of his signature priorities and a lot of lawmakers are on board with that. And if you look at the statistics, half of all the energy consumed in Hawaii goes toward transportation. That's according to the federal government, the Energy Information Administration. Um, And in its 2019 energy report card, the Blue Planet Foundation, which is a local clean energy nonprofit, said that transportation uh, is responsible responsible for two-thirds of all fossil fuel consumption in the state. Um, So if we're trying to decarbonize, this is a huge... Uh, sector, and it's one that um, is not as easy to see the transformation as perhaps in electricity generation. And sometimes when people talk about renewable energy and clean energy, transportation's role is underplayed or forgotten because you don't have the visual of the solar uh, rooftop solar or uh, wind, things like that. But it's a significant portion, as you said. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a little easier to imagine how you can take a coal plant offline and replace it with solar panels or, or a wind farm or, or geothermal. Um, but there's kind of some more steps involved to replace uh, the gasoline transportation sure. infrastructure with an electric one. Um, and that kind of reflects in the data right now in Hawaii. EVs account for less than 1% of Hawaii's 1.3 million registered vehicles. Um, EVs are cheaper to operate and maintain over their lifetime than an internal combustion car, Um, but they're a little more expensive to purchase, usually if you compare kind of like vehicles, gas and electric. Um, And so one of the ways that proponents of EV adoption are looking at to get more EVs on the road is to lower that sticker price. Um, Melissa Miyashiro is with the Blue Planet Foundation, and she describes an idea called a fee-bait there would be a fee that's charged on our most fuel-inefficient vehicles. And that would fund rebates for electric vehicle models that are under a certain MSRP. Blue Planet is supporting several of these uh, electric vehicle adoption measures at the Capitol. Another one they're looking at is uh, an idea to create a state tax credit for the purchase of an electric vehicle. There's a similar program um, already in underway at, at the federal level. At the federal level, you get a $7,500 tax credit 
for the purchase of an electric vehicle. Worth noting that that's $7,500 off your tax bill. So when you file in April, that would be like a mm-hmm. deduction you would get. Mm-hmm. So if you don't owe the federal government $7,500, you're not going to get the full deduction. Right. State lawmakers are looking right now. The number is 2,500, 2,500. So that would be on top of the uh, the federal tax credit, um, and that might make logical sense to people listening. If you want to lower the price, that's one way to do it. It's basically a rebate. But the auto industry really doesn't like it. That was kind of surprising to me uh, because it's tax credits are in essence a subsidy, and you would think private business would want Mm -hmm. to make their Mm -hmm. product cheaper Mm -hmm. for people to buy without having to lose money themselves. But David Rolfe with the Hawaii Auto Dealers Association says that uh, they view the tax credit as a very disruptive idea, and they went on to say that it's inefficient at promoting EV adoption. They've tried something like that in Atlanta, but when they stopped it, instead of selling 1,400 vehicles a month, they went on to selling 100 vehicles a month. So it's really disruptive to these dealerships that made these huge changes to be able to sell electric vehicles just to have the credit stopped all of a sudden and the market dry up. So we've never been in favor of state credits. And he was describing a program that the state of Georgia enacted. It was in place for several years. They had a $5,000 state tax credit on EVs. And then there was a change of government, and the lawmakers decided to repeal the credit. Mm -hmm. And uh, after a few years, it was taken away. And then uh, David Rolfe described kind of the market impact of of what happened with that. He says that's really, really problematic for the dealers because, uh, you know, uh, businesses and consumers respond to prices. And so if... Uh, if dealers were selling, like he said, 1,400 vehicles a month, EVs, they're going to start shifting their inventory in that direction, and then they had a really substantial drop. Um, I think it is worth noting, though, that that shows the tax credits at least were effective mm. in promoting EV use if they dropped off, if sales dropped off after it went away. Um, and that's pretty noteworthy. He said 1,400 a month. He told me that last year, only 2,000 electric vehicles sold statewide. So that's that's a pretty substantial uh, portion of, of, of everything that we have here in Hawaii. Rolf went on to say that they think the tax credits are not really efficient at promoting EV adoption. And he uses that 2,000 figure. He said, right now, last year, we sold 2,000 EVs with no tax credit other than the federal one, which is still in place. So he said you would need to basically spend... $2,500 times 2,000 vehicles just to get the one, uh, the next one mm. that people have already purchased. Sort of approaching a level of theoretical math by the time you get that because uh, consumer behavior, and this has played out in other markets as well, you see that people respond to incentives, but then as you say, that changes other behavior. And on the dealer level, yeah, it changes almost the infrastructure of that, certainly the supply chain and the assumptions that they have. Because with business, you're always wanting to plan forward. And then when there's that uncertainty, that adds the uncertainty to the business as well. Yeah, and he said that the inventory is one of the big problems with EVs right now. Most auto manufacturers don't have more than maybe one or two models mm-hmm. available. And he said the vast majority of electric vehicles sold in the United States are still Teslas. Um, And so you have all these other dealers uh, that are trying to compete with that, and they have a much smaller market share in the EV market. So what Rolf said the auto dealers would rather see is a government-funded marketing campaign to kind of permanently shift consumer preferences towards EVs. Um, And he says you could take the money that would go to a tax credit. You could put a surcharge on people's electric bills. There's different options for how you could raise the money to do this and do a long-term protracted kind of marketing campaign to try and describe the benefits of EV use and and get people to shift that way. Uh, Worth noting, he said he drives an EV as well, so he's not opposed to them. Um, But they're they don't like the tax credit idea. They said it causes them some problems. You know, it's interesting. Part of that, though, also, I think, is the supply of vehicles available. For for instance, it's almost at this point like the white whale, but people talk about the electric pickup truck. Wait till the electric pickup truck hits, hits Hawaii because in terms of demand, then you're talking about something that uh, is, is a much more popular item on a broader scale than, than a Tesla. Yeah, and I think that's, that's definitely true. There are some electric pickup trucks uh, that are 
on the cusp of mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. going mainstream. But Rolf said that uh, a big part of it is that people are still a little bit unsure about EVs, you know, and maybe some of the concerns are unfounded, but there he said there are concerns about range, about how you would do charging, the availability of charging stations, that kind of thing. Um, and so that's kind of why he proposes this marketing campaign so that you can sort of uh, get everybody on a level playing field, maybe clarify whatever misconceptions are out there and then demonstrate the 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 benefits of that uh, of that product. But meanwhile, there are a lot of bills, as you mentioned. Yeah, there are a lot of bills, and a couple even want to ban gasoline-powered vehicles. It doesn't look like they're going anywhere, but um, that's a more extreme option that uh, I guess you would say climate hawks are, are more in favor of. They say we need really dramatic action to address the problem of carbon emissions and carbon pollution, and that that's uh, maybe something that we do need to look at. The bills range from bans on sales, uh, to bans on operation outright uh, anywhere from the next five years to the next uh, 20 years. Ryan Finnerty, he covers many topics down at the legislature and this session, electric vehicles among them. Ryan, thanks for coming along. No problem, Bill. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providers of auto, home, commercial, and specialty lines of insurance since 1911. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, FICOH.com. When you give to Hawaii Public Radio, you can do so knowing that your contribution will be used wisely. That's because we have been awarded a four-star rating from Charity Navigator, America's largest independent evaluator of nonprofits. And we've earned that rating eight years in a row. It tells you that your donation goes toward the things that matter most. For more about Charity Navigator or to become a member, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the U.S. Census Bureau, dedicated to providing current information about the people of the United States, now hiring census takers for the 2020 census. More at 2020census.gov jobs. What's in your water? If you live in Hawaii, not fluoride, unless you live on a military base. And that's different than roughly 70% of the country. It's also a long-running story, and the topic for today's reality check. Honolulu's Civil Beat reporter Eleni Gill is on the line. And good morning, Eleni. And this is, uh, as we Aloha. say, Aloha, a long-running dispute. Yeah, it's really fascinating because fluoridation has become a common practice in the U.S. and many other countries, but Hawaii has resisted, for, resisted it for many years. Um, but what was different and what caught our attention this year was a bill that was introduced to ban fluoride from ever being added to the public water supply in the future. Uh, that bill was introduced by Senator Mike Gabbard, and that was something that had not been discussed before. Um, the bill did not advance, so it's dead for this uh, legislative session, it, but it could come up again in the future. Uh, but anyhow, there is definitely a strong community uh, that feels that fluoride is unsafe for pu public consumption. Um, and the debate that has been ongoing is generally split between two camps. I would say on one hand, uh, there are dentists and public health advocates on the pro-fluoride side that say it's cavity-fighting power is a public benefit, um, and it's water fluoridation has been endorsed by the Hawaii Dental Association, um, and it has the global backing of the scientific and medical community, including the World Health Organization, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and uh, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC. And the CDC also has, um, they said in 2015 that they called it one of the greatest public health achievements of the country um, in the country's history. 
uh, because it is such a cost-effective and preventative health initiative that reduces tooth decay by about 25% in children and adults. Uh, but then on the other hand, you know, there are folks who believe putting anything in our water is just simply a really bad idea. Um, there are fears about its toxicity and um, bad health outcomes. And there are a handful of longtime Hawaii lawmakers who um, are on who believe this as well. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned that uh, CDC uh, citing uh, community water fluoridation of one of the greatest public health achievements. And you couple that with another fact that you have in your story of a uh, 2015 Hawaii Department of Health study finding that Hawaii has the highest rate of tooth decay in the country among third graders. And that sort of pairing is an, is an interesting match. Yeah, and this is something that comes up in testimony a lot, too. But the reason why this is so heated in Hawaii is because we actually have some of the poorest um, oral health in the country. And that Hawaii Smiles report um, took a look at third graders um, because it's uh, sort of metric that is used nationally. But they found that um, our third graders, about 70% of them had uh, been affected by tooth decay, which could mean cavities. It could mean a lot of things. Um, but... 70%, and that was um, much higher than the national average. Um, anyhow, so one of the doctors, uh, dentist Anthony Kim, who I spoke with, he has practiced um, throughout Oahu. He is also on the board of trustees for the Hawaii Dental Association. Uh, but he was saying that a lot of his dentist colleagues, they can actually see the difference um, in the tooth enamel. Um, when they have a patient, they can tell immediately whether or not that patient grew up in Hawaii or not. Um, and when he worked uh, and contracted at the Schofield barracks, he could tell which soldiers um, were probably from a place where they had fluoridated water. Um, and when he went to screen some third graders for that Hawaii Smiles report at public schools throughout Oahu, um, the differences between the elementary school students' oral health was really staggering for him, just visually. Um, but I guess back to the 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 reason why this has come up so much is because the opposition usually stems from studies that link fluoride intake with um, things like lower IQs and other bad health outcomes. But federal health agencies and many academic and metal, medical leaders have dismissed those arguments in those cases because those studies are um, looking at areas where they might have negative Very high outcomes concentrations from naturally, inc of, yeah, yes, naturally yes. occurring fluoride in the water. Um, there, and so there's some cases where you have to even filter out fluoride. There's a, uh, uh, yeah. there's a long history there, and it's interesting. You can find out more of that uh, reading Alani Gill's uh, piece at civilbeat.org. Thanks, Alani. Thank you so much. If you've been watching the Democratic presidential debates, you've heard a lot about taxes, what taxes could be raised or adjusted to pay for health care plans, education, other initiatives. But there's also a much more basic question about taxes. Who's paying them and who's avoiding them? Our contributing editor, Neil Milner, takes on that topic in today's edition of The Long View. And Neil, some, some interesting insights about tax payment, tax avoidance, and, and tax evasion. Yes. Uh, let's make the distinction, first of all. Tax avoidance is not only perfectly legal, but in fact, the IRS encourages it. I am a tax avoider because I own a house. Ah, yes. One of the great tax avoidance uh, the systems there is. If you're a renter, you don't get that kind of tax avoidance. Tax evasion is illegal. It's an attempt to essentially hide money, hide assets. And one of the most controversial areas, and we'll get back to this, I'm sure, is in the area of hiding your money offshore. Well, I'm pretty sure, Bill, you and I don't hide <laughs> our money offshore because there's no island small enough that would care about the money we would hide. But for big players, and a whole lot of them, uh, as the Panama Papers showed a few mm. years ago, it, thousands of Heavy hitters all around the world use these kinds of things, and they're controversial, and in theory, the IRS can go after them. In practice, it's not necessarily the case. And that's an interesting point that you raise uh, as well, that part of the practice of this, you have, just as you have uh, on the 
the referee side, on the government side of auditors and others chasing and checking, you have on the other side of this folks working for the, the companies and the wealthy individuals trying to keep a couple of steps ahead of that. Right. So let's make a distinction here because the, that the, the sides are a little bit more equal with one group and very unequal against the government on the other group. Ah, interesting. Yeah, you think of the two kinds of people who are tax evaders, two classic, that is, they're doing it illegally. People who don't report their income, little people, people who maybe get some kind of cash stuff mm. and don't report it, or now this is a little harder, you get tips and you don't report it. There is a fair amount of that, and that has to do with whether your income is visible or not. You know, if you're salaried, you have a W-2 form. The right. government knows from the get-go it's part of the deal. I just filled out for giving one talk sometime in April a W-9 form. So the government is going to know how much I made, and it's going to take off a certain amount of taxes. But for unreported, for, for invisible income, it's always easier to non-comply on anything if there isn't a surveillance on you. So that's, that's the little people's side. Mm. Then you have the super heavy hitters like Microsoft. And, and on that side, the government, let's go back to the little people side sure. for a second. The government has ways of dealing with it. It's obviously not always successful. You know, there's a lot of money there's, that, that gets lost. But the government has a fair shot at this. The IRS has a fair shot. If you look at the super rich, the super large companies, IRS is definitely at a disadvantage. And that's what the ProPublica piece that I uh, was referring to uh, does when it looks at Microsoft's attempt so far successful to evade taxes by doing um, offshore stuff. Real fast, what that involved is essentially Tra essentially transferring its all of its assets, almost all of its assets, all its intellectual property worth billions of dollars to an 85-person offshoot company in Puerto Rico because Microsoft's attorneys and tax people had convinced uh, Puerto Rico to give them a tax break. So essentially, it, it's a huge break worth billions of dollars. The IRS finally said we've had enough of this kind of stuff the 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 transactions that we, that Microsoft used were so controversial that even and there's emails on this their accountant said wow this is really innovative mm. IRS went after them IRS is always at a disadvantage here because big companies are repeat players with lots of resources they can go to court IRS said we're going to we're going to audit Microsoft we're going to get this money back. The IRS hires tax attorneys from the big firms to do this. They get very aggressive. They do all kinds of things. Uh, the, this is still going on, but up to now what has happened is that Microsoft is winning. They lobbied Congress to change the law to make it harder for the IRS to be as proactive as they are here and managed to create a vision that says the IRS are the villains here. Uh, they're trying too hard. Well, what this does is it, it shows what money and power can do uh, it, if, if you have the lawyers, if you have the accountants. It's nothing new. It's just another example of how people with power can, can do this. That's, that's the big side. And all kinds of companies do this. Uh, most of the time, it's seen as legal or it just wears down. And that's... I think amongst voters, certainly, that provokes a lot of anger in, I, in terms of that, that targeting of, yeah, as you say, the little folks, oh, yes, we have room for enforcement for that. But the, sure. meanwhile, these, these huge players. Well, it's interesting. I mean, if, if the, what's interesting to me about it is that people, is that the, the anti-IRS argument gets easily tied into a kind of big government always watching you type of things. And so people may react to it, may find themselves on the camp of the IRS as, as a villain. On the other hand, you're right. You raise this issue of fairness. People, the other studies have shown, Vanessa Williamson's book, Read My Lips, which I talked about a, a year or two ago on this show, showed in this, in this very thorough survey and interviews of, voter, of voters, people feel that it's their moral obligation to pay taxes. They're fine with it provided that it's used properly um, and provided there's some transparency. 
but and and used properly means that it gets used for people who, in their minds, deserve it. Yeah, but, it's unfortunate you don't get to write on the little memo part of your check of where you would like that's your right. tax money to go. That's right. <laughs> Although, if you if these people wrote, there'd be a lot of poor people uh, who wouldn't be getting money mm-hmm. because a lot of it has to do with folks that that uh, folks think that uh, taxpayers think are undeserving. But the point that I, I think that's important here is that this willingness to pay taxes may in some ways counter the argument that the IRS are you know, the IRS villains and heavy-handed because if you get across the idea of fairness, here's the problem, and this is an advantage that large corporations and people in power always have. Many of these battles are fought in private. Not mm. illegally, but they're fought in administrative agencies. There's fought in low-level things. They're not the kinds of things that get that get the news. The fact that ProPublica, ProPublica, which is a investigative reporter unit, it has to be the one that did the log documentary on this suggests what the what the problem is. So, in some ways, the whole issue of money and power um, and obligation gets gets played out here. And, uh, you know, the, the Chamber of Commerce came out in favor of Microsoft and, mm. on this kind of thing. It's still going on, but there's never been an audit that's, uh, that's been thoroughly done, and uh, Microsoft certainly hasn't had to pay anything back. Interesting also, just coming back to that point that uh, most Americans feel that paying taxes is a moral obligation, the fairness issue, and really the, the kuleana is part of being a citizen Yes. the United States, that that goes along with that. Yeah, it does. They think it's part of citizenship, and they think about it. I think she was surprised what she found, that there was this kind of sense that, we're, you know, this is not about a bunch of tightwads who say you don't have to pay taxes. Um, you, know, we don't, you know, we don't have kids in school anymore. We don't care. People cared, yeah. and people were willing to pay it with some important provisos. And I think one of the things that people are concerned with is the fairness of the process. Fairness. Always an issue. Thank you. Neil Milner, (laughs) contributing editor Neil Milner, takes on uh, that topic on The Long View. We've been talking with him. He's a retired professor of political science and contributing editor of our segment, The Long View. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting For You Fabulous, Fashionable Women, woodblock prints featuring women from the Edo period in Japan through March 22nd. HonoluluMuseum.org. Aloha! This is Uncle Wayne of Uncle Wayne and the Howling Dog Band, inviting you to join us in HPR's Atherton Studio on Saturday, March 14th. It's a morning of children's music full of aloha and positivity that the whole family can enjoy. Keiki 7 and under get in free, but space is limited, so reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by the Cole Academy Child Development Centers. In today's Backyard Quiz, we look at the only woman wrestler from Hawaii to compete in the Olympics. She's currently an assistant coach with Team USA Wrestling, but her own career competing includes two Summer Olympic appearances, a World Championship, multiple appearances in the Pan American Games, and more. Her big Olympic win came in the 2012 London Olympics, where she won bronze by defeating Ukrainian Irani Merlini, who won the gold medal in 2004. She wasn't always a wrestler. She competed in judo as a younger person and played water polo, but the Roosevelt High grad started wrestling her junior year. The first year of women's wrestling was an official school sport in Hawaii and won the state championship in 1998. She repeated a year later. And for her accomplishments, Clarissa Chun was named to the Hawaii Sports Hall of Fame in 2018. Jay Jarman knew that from IAEA. He got in touch, and he says that he got to touch Clarissa's medal because her mom, Gail Chun, brought it to the bank, sharing the win with the community and the latest reminder that Matt Burns build character. That is today's quiz. If you have a quiz, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Sex trafficking and homelessness, two of the toughest issues facing Hawaii's at-risk youth. And a new study shows they're more connected than many have thought. That information comes as more than a dozen bills addressing sex trafficking are making their way through this year's legislative session. House Bill 20, 2062 and Senate Bill 2334 are among a number of proposals that would expand services for trafficked and at-risk youth. The conversations Harrison Patino spoke with several people involved in this issue and has more on the story. A recent study by Child and Family Services Hawaii links sex trafficking with homelessness. The survey of nearly 400 individuals involved in some form of sex trafficking showed that nearly two-thirds of them had been homeless at some point. It's a startling glimpse into a pair of social issues that, to many, seemed entirely separate. Homelessness and trafficking, you know, it's two traumatizing situations that are often put into silos and not always addressed together. However, they're intrinsically tied together. That's Jessica Munoz, executive director of Ho'olanapua, which offers outreach services to at-risk street youth. Munoz says homeless people face a higher risk of trafficking. While a connection between these two issues has been known to experts for years, recent studies show how closely the two have become linked in Hawaii. When you look at the vulnerabilities and the factors of why homeless youth can end up in these situations, they often come from family dysfunction, kids that are exiting the child welfare and juvenile justice systems, having that prior history of sexual abuse. And so homeless youth tend to be very vulnerable to sex traffickers because you know, they have those risks of being on the streets, being vulnerable. But if you're struggling to survive and you're looking for a place to live and you have no support system, you're going to be forced into this situation. Nearly a quarter of the survey's participants reported that they were children when they were first trafficked. A similar number say that their first trafficker was a family member. The survey is also a rare breakthrough in the fight against sex trafficking, an issue that has been notoriously hard to measure. We go from one end of the spectrum to the other, right? We have people that are forced into it. You just happen to be in that dance club at that time and you get drunk and you get taken into a situation where there's money exchange. You may not see it you may see it. You also have the very gradual, he's your boyfriend, like you're part of the team, and he just wants you to do this one thing, this one time, that kind of situation where you are in this lifestyle before you know it, and it's violent, it's very violent. It can just go from very gradual to very abrupt, and so you just find yourself in that situation. Tammy Batanga is a community advocate with Ho'olanapua and a former victim of sex trafficking. She says solving the problem of sex trafficking is a difficult task, as it requires recognizing how gradually the crime can occur in the first place. According to Batanga, recognizing the trauma that leads potential victims to sex trafficking is critical. If we continue to just keep on letting people know that trauma is the root of the behavior, like if somebody is doing substance, they have substance abuse, most of the time they are trying to hide away that trauma. They're trying to numb out. So then they become vulnerable because they are using substance, which they could be running away from an abuser. So I think if, if we can just keep on that path of letting people know that that's the root of it is the trauma. We can't box it in. It's homelessness. It's trauma. It's sex abuse. It's how do we treat our children? Despite the new data, institutional change in the fight against sex trafficking has been slow. Experts say that's because of both a lack of legislative urgency and a fundamental public misconception of the issue. Many argue that access to better resources can help victims break out of the cycle of sex trafficking. Carla Hauser is the executive director of RISE, an outreach organization that often counsels homeless youths and victims of trafficking. RISE offers services to street youths aged 18 to 24. But according to Hauser, one of the main difficulties in addressing the trafficking of at-risk youth is how society views victims during their transition into adulthood. There's often this transition period for young people, for youth, and we now have services that will address if a young person gets picked up for exploitation. You know, we have a shelter system. Um, we have organizations like Ho'onapua and Halikipa and, you know, child welfare involvement. My question is, is what happens after they turn 18? A lot of the trauma still hasn't healed. They're still youth by all of the federal definitions, yet 
we're not able to shelter them anymore. And so those are areas where I want to continue to see us grow. Really being able to expand those services to cover youth all the way up to 24. It's incredibly frustrating to have a, a 16, 17 year old who is labeled as a survivor, as a victim. And then as soon as they turn 18, they now become a perpetrator or prostitute. And those definitions just don't align with what we know about youth and brain development and where they are in the whole process. Hauser stresses that confronting sex trafficking among Hawaii's homeless means acknowledging a series of other complicated issues. It's gray and it's complicated and it's sticky and messy. If we judge a young person about promiscuity or you know substance use, they're never going to open up and tell you what's really going on. And so being able to walk that line with our young people and giving them the voice, I think that's what's missing in a lot of this often is hearing what our young people have to say and why they did it and what labels do they want to keep, which ones do they not. And you know, for so many of them, it's just a a means to survive. Hauser argues that expanding the support system for victims of sex trafficking means recognizing it as being fundamentally connected to homelessness, domestic abuse, and addiction, among many other social issues. By addressing the problems that enable trafficking in the first place, advocates can better offer help to those who need it most. That was The Conversation's Harrison Patina speaking with Ho'ola Napu's Jessica Munoz and Tammy Batanga, as well as Carla Hauser with the organization RISE on the connection between homelessness and sex trafficking here in Hawaii. That is the conversation for today. Mahalo for joining us. Tell us what you think, or you can suggest a story idea, something for us to track. Call our talkback line. Leave us your comments. You can call 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find us on Facebook at The Conversation HPR, Twitter at HI Conversation. This show and all past ones available at the Conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Bill Dorman. Catherine Cruz will be back tomorrow with more of The Conversation. Mm-hmm.